Stephen Greenblatt is John Cogan University Professor of the Humanities at Harvard University. He is the Pulitzer Prize and National Book Award winning author of The Swerve, Will in the World, and The Rise and Fall of Adam and Eve, and the general editor of the Norton Shakespeare. We're here in Brattleboro, Vermont, to talk about his latest book entitled Tyrant Shakespeare on Politics, published by Norton. Welcome to the Bibliophile. Thank you. You don't mention Trump, just as Shakespeare doesn't mention Elizabeth. But he had a pretty good reason he risked getting his head cut off. This isn't Iran. What risks do you face, if any? I certainly don't face any uh, political risks. That's to say, I don't risk having my head cut off, and uh, I'm grateful to live in a democratic society with uh, the possibility of freedom of expression guaranteed by our Constitution. So, uh, as far as I can tell, uh, I don't run any risks at all uh, if I wish to write a book about Donald Trump or anyone else uh, in our political life. Uh, it's my right. So why didn't you name him? Because the book is about Shakespeare and Shakespeare and politics, but of course also about uh, the present and about the deep past. Things are not only living in one place uh, and time. That was true in Shakespeare's time. It's always uh, true. And I would suggest, Nigel, that even in Shakespeare's time, that the where, as you've said, there is a distinct prohibition and a high degree of danger to write about the present. That's not the only reason to look away from the present to the past or a distant place or to an imaginary place. There are lots of other reasons why you might not want to speak, why you might see things differently if you look obliquely, as I write in my book. I have a specific reason as well, which is that... Um, how shall I put it, repressive regimes in the past, such as the one that Shakespeare lived in, and in the present, say, North Korea, practice traditional forms of silencing, which have to do with cutting people's tongues out and burning their books. But that's not the only way to deal with dissent. Uh, more sophisticated regimes in our own world uh, have learned that you can change the conversation, suppress dissent, um, control uh, discourse by producing an enormous amount of noise. And the production of a huge amount of noise turns out to be the functional equivalent uh, of silencing. And you uh, suggest that the, the tyrant makes a lot of noise and a tyrant, you, the way you put it is, they get into everyone's heads. Where, do you find, where did you find that in Shakespeare? Well, it's quite remarkable in uh, Richard III. That's the most fascinating and delicious uh, example because he's in our head, not just all the other characters' heads. He's mm -hmm. just uh, everyone. is The conversation, the vision of things is completely dominated by him, even though he's, uh, uh, at least as the play begins, and certainly back in the uh, Henry VI plays earlier, he's a quite marginal character 
but somehow Shakespeare early on, even in the Henry VI place, uh, realized that that character, as he conceived it, would burrow into everyone's consciousness. It's, it's, that is just a fascinating parallel with Trump, because I spend a lot of time trying to keep Trump out <laughs> of these interviews because of exactly that. Mm -hmm. Well, he's, we can keep him out, I was to say, I don't mention him. Uh, so, so <laughs> no, I'm going to keep him in because, because I, I'd like to compare Trump to Richard III to Macbeth. Because these are completely different characters, yet you're, you're, you're suggesting that they're all tyrants. Mm -hmm. yep. Which I guess you're not suggesting that every tyrant has to be the same. You're just picking characteristics that you suggest each of these three characters. Uh, the three again are? Trump, yes. Richard III, and Macbeth. Yeah. I wouldn't, I mean, I, I, I wouldn't myself wasn't just coyness or slyness on my part not to mention uh, the current president. It's also because I think that there's not much uh, served in the kind of conversation in which after two seconds someone has mentioned Adolf Hitler. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. that, there's, that, a, there's a name for that. Uh, there's a theory. Was it? Any case... Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a talk stopper. Yeah. It, 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 in this case, I think there are features in our current administration, and for that matter, across the world, in Putin, in uh, Erdogan, in Duterte, in Salvini in Italy now, in the person in Brazil, uh, there are features that capture one's attention that have to do both with authoritarianism and with a certain way personalities as you uh, say, or as I say in my book, mm. certain kinds of personalities borrow into your mind. Got dumb, uh, but, but I don't think they're all the same. Mm. And I think that you can detect certain things, think about certain things, precisely if you look away, not if you collapse. So I, I have no personal uh, interest in saying Donald Trump is Macbeth, is Richard III, mm. is Coriolanus. Well, the last thing he is is Coriolanus. But that's, uh, that's what you're saying in your book. I'm just, I'm trying to get two temporalities in relation to one another, two okay. situations in relation to one another, and to have the wires produce a certain kind of energy. I'm not saying, I don't say that one is the other, uh, but all my, really all my professional life, or much of it, I've been interested in, as I think anyone interested in the literature of the past should be, what's the relationship between our concerns, our current interests, our anxieties, and the culture of the past. So that fascinates me. That's what you're practicing, new historicism. Right. right. And at the very beginning, the earliest moment of, moments of new historicism, I remember beginning a chapter on Christopher Marlowe a long time ago with a quotation that I had come upon, uh, come upon quite by accident in Hacklett's great late 16th century collection of travels. Uh, he describes, a merchant describes going into a village in Sierra Leone. And he says, our men, we entered into the village and we were, the people who lived there all ran away uh, and we were amazed at how clean the village was. There wasn't so much dust as could fill an eggshell, he says. Uh, the houses and the streets were finely kept. There wasn't very much in the houses except for gore, a few gourds 
and then he said, as we left, our men set the village on fire and it was burned within a few minutes. So I wrote about that in the context of Christopher Marlowe, of Marlowe's Tamburlaine, Shakespeare's contemporary. Marlowe's Tamburlaine's two plays about military violence in the Mongol Turkic period and about the combination of of, of violence and inexplicable acts. Why burn the thing down? Now, I wrote about that, about Marlowe, but I also had in mind the pictures that we had at that time been watching on television of the GIs uh, setting fire to the hooches in the thatched roofs of the hooches that in Vietnam. Mm. It's not because I thought that the GIs are Tamburlaine, I mean, or that, or that they're that man in Sierra Leone, but I want to... The only point about being interested in the past, unless you're a pure antiquarian, is because you think the past has something to tell you about the present, mm. and you think that the present has something to tell you about the past. I won't bite at the yeah. idea of saying... I'm pushing uh, it, I'm yeah. pushing it, though, because some of these passages, they could have appeared in the Washington Post describing yes. the current president. That's, that's one. I'm pushing it. Why do otherwise proud and self-respecting people submit to the sheer effrontery of the tyrant? His sense that he can get away with saying and doing anything he likes, like shooting someone on Fifth Avenue. His spectacular indecency, like grabbing pussies. I mean, it's... And this is... You're talking about what Shakespeare's looking at. Mm -hmm. I mean, Shakespeare, at the beginning of uh, Richard III, has... Richard, who's not yet king, uh, Duke of Gloucester, come on to bully, seduce a kind of weird mixture of, of uh, uh, assault and, and seduction, a woman whose husband and father he's killed. I know. In fact, I, I'm so glad you brought that up. I think that's the worst scene in Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. Worst I, in what sense? In the sense that it's completely unbelievable. Well, you, uh, you, you, that's interesting. You think that, that uh, I mean, he, Shakespeare, as it happened, fiddled with the historical record a bit uh, to, make, to make it work for him. I mean, there is some historical prece- actual historical precedent for this, but he played with it a little bit. Well, he must have shortened the time yeah, frame. Yeah, he did shorten yeah. it, elaborately shortened the time frame. But the yeah. point is that, the, is that it's, you're more, maybe more optimistic than I am, Nigel. I mean, I think that it's often the case that, that First of all, identification with the aggressor is a familiar phenomenon, and mm. submission to apparent submission. It's not clear she's seduced. It's not clear whether she, what, what her choices are. Apparent submission to some terrifying uh, bully, uh, as in as Shakespeare depicts there, is something I think happens not every day, but it's to me, it's not inconceivable. I think certainly he. He could have, quote, seduced her, but the fact that she agrees to marry him, that's just over the top for me. It's a little bit like, Nigel, it's a little bit like those speeches that, that uh, people whom we know were innocent in the late 16th century, or for that matter, in Soviet Russia, routinely gave just before they were being executed. Why the hell did they do that? They, they, well, there are a lot of different reasons. To some extent, they, sometimes they were trying to protect other people. To some extent, they identified in a kind of strange way with the uh, aggressor. To some extent, they uh, had no—they felt they had no choice. 
uh, there was a script, in effect, written for them that they had to perform. Who knows? And so you can you can play it as real seduction, but you but you don't have to play it that yeah. way. You can play it also as as pussy grabbing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm put in mind of Measure for Measure when uh, Angelo and Isabella. Yeah. The interesting thing about those examples is that if I write about Angelo and Isabella in Measure for Measure, or if I write about uh, Richard the Third and Lady Anne as I do, uh, you want to say to me, oh, you're just writing about Trump yeah. and about pussy grabbing. <laughs> well, I would say something like the other way around, that it's quite interesting that Shakespeare associated uh, illegitimate or tyrannical power with pussy grabbing. And that's, uh, he, you wouldn't have th- thought necessarily that mm-hmm. would be the first place to go, uh, but he does go there. And in fact, that turns out to be an ancient idea. It's, Livy, it's why Livy... Uh, gives an account of, of Lucrece, that, uh, Lucretia, that story that Shakespeare was interested in. There's a relationship between, in that case, between um, sexual assault and, the, as Livy understood it, the origins of Republican Rome, because the, the tyrant thinks he can get away with that. Mm-hmm. But, uh, and he does for a while, uh, but not forever. It's so interesting, again, with today's uh, zeitgeist and the, just the Supreme Court hearings getting away with stuff. It's, uh, I think there's something in this new historicism. <laughs> you talk about there having to be a weakness at the center of the realm, which makes it ripe for a despot. I'm going to try and, if you don't mind, bring it back to the present day again. So the weakness, and also then factions hardening into mortal enemies, partisan feuding, group loathing, which is exactly what's going on in the, between the parties right now, the, the, the main parties in the United States. But as far as weakness at the center, do you see any, where, where was, was Obama the weakness at the center? Well, again, I don't want to say that it's a, a, an allegory, a direct account. No, but, but I do you're, think inviting, you're inviting I do, this of course, kind of I do, And I, I do think that in the case of Shakespeare's first attempt to understand how this happens in the Henry VI plays, uh, it is interesting that he thought that, that Henry VI, who was a young man, a child, when he exceeds the power, as Shakespeare imagines it, he, he's actually very good person. He actually sees what is the, the problems that are happening. But he's not a a uh, Machiavellian uh, person. He's not an immoral person. He's not a person willing to suspend the rules to get what he wants. He's a person who wants to to reason with people uh, in order to achieve what he thinks is is the good of the realm. And that turns out not to work in the situation that he's in now. I as I say I I don't I think I know something about the late 16th century and about Shakespeare. I don't speak to you as a someone who holds himself to be an expert on contemporary American politics. I'm just a citizen as you are. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I would have said, happened to have supported Obama, I would have said at the beginning of the Obama administration, he used the political capital that he had bravely and intelligently to try to achieve, as he did achieve at great cost, the health care reform that's now being dismantled, though not completely. And then in the subsequent years after the midter- his first midterm election, he had a m- much weaker hand to play, 
weakness is not necessarily only personal weakness it's mm. political weakness yeah. Grid, uh, the gridlock so the personal the, the, I, I have no judgment at all about his personal character though I think in fact he was precisely someone probably temperamentally and for other reasons uh, who, who almost never showed anger outrage and so forth he just he showed an attempt to speak quietly and reasonably to people now the political weakness, which continued for the next six years, does seem seem to me to have been exactly what has allowed to harden this um, intransigent political factionalism on both sides. So that, and this is exactly what you found in Shakespeare. Neither side can even bear the sound of the other voices. Yeah, you just yeah. can't stand it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and that's not that's not as I say on one in one house one side of the house and, no. and not on the other side. No. It's in both sides of the house. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and again, uh, in the plays, there's a breakdown of basic values, respect for order, <clears throat> civility, and human decency. The norms, it's not just that the rules are broken. The fundamental, ordinary norms are broken. Lots of things in society don't depend on their being codified and rule-bound. They're norms. And people expect that the norms will basically hold, and if they're not hold, that there'll be a price that will be paid for violating them. Uh, there was no rule that said that no one could be elected president or no one could be elected senator who had been, been guilty of, of sexual assault or, uh, or for that matter, of adultery or, or, uh, but, um, or rape or whatever. But the expectation was, normative expectation of the culture was that, that you'd pay a price for that. And that, uh, back to the days of Gary Hart or to yeah. I mean, innumerable figures who, who's lost power for things that we would barely think at this moment uh, would, would cause uh, a ripple. But that was normative. There's no mm. law that said that. Mm. And then you discover that the norms don't hold. Yeah, they're sliding. That's fascinating. Uh, and many things that you think are, are sh that's at least in Shakespeare, uh, you get a world in which people think that the normal will hold, that the institutions will hold, that the norms will hold, that the basic values will hold, and then they discover that's not true. And then what happens? <laughs> All hell breaks loose. <laughs> well, what happens, in, in, in effect, in Shakespeare's account, is that that leads to the rise of a certain kind of fraudulent populism, the populism that's identified in Shakespeare with the figure Jack Cade. Mm -hmm. uh, let's kill all the lawyers, first thing we do, and then... Yeah, I always thought that that had to do with just lawyers being difficult and so everyone, No, so everyone likes to make fun of lawyers, like making fun of doctors in Shakespeare as well. But uh, what you're saying is it's the populace saying, let's get, let's, I'm not going to pay my debt now. Right, no more taxes. Let, we're, let's not pay our taxes anymore. We, our expectation is that everyone, especially if you're in a position of responsibility, you have to pay your taxes. But then you discover that, I mean, no one likes doing it. So the idea that someone's going to offer you a holiday from all of this, from all the obligations that you have, all the contracts that you have. Uh, and, and this is, again, part of the historical record. That's Shakespeare isn't making this up. That the, the, from time to time, when there were popular uprisings, populist uprisings, they never succeeded in taking over a country. But the desire was to burn the, yeah. the records. Burn everything down. Yeah. Burn the records. Burn mm -hmm. the, the, the land tenures. Burn 
the contracts burn up. You can see why. It doesn't. Mm. I mean, it's not particularly mysterious. Or drain the swamp. Or, well, I mean, Jack Cade uh, in Shakespeare's play says he's he's got a broom. That's yes. called a swamp. That's it's going to sweep uh, the country clean of the of all of the uh, the dirt, the outrages, and so forth. The tyrant, and this is this is another striking line. The tyrant has the power to make nightmares real. Yes. Now, North Korea is, uh, I, I, you know, we were kind of mm-hmm. lulled by by Trump's rhetoric about how I, mean, he, I like the guy. And mm-hmm. incidentally, it's whenever he says mm-hmm. anything, it's about I like he likes me. Yes. I think I like him. I think he likes me, and that's. That is brought up in, in, in the text here too. There's a fascinating book. I don't talk about in, in Tyrant at all. Mm. Uh, there's a fascinating book I read years ago in, in German called Das Dritte Reich des Traumes, The Third Reich of Dreams. It was a very strange and fascinating project. Someone found the dreams, the psychiatric records of the dreams that Jews ha- had in the 1930s in uh, Germany. And they were going to the psychiatrist. The psychiatrist kept records of the dreams, mm-hmm. and the dreams are eerily prophetic. They, the, they're about uh, discovering that the walls around you have fallen, and everyone is looking at you. That you're, that you, you're, uh, you're thrown into a garbage can. That you can't sit on a bench, and so forth and so on. They all things that were actually done. Mm. So that there is again kind of a consciousness that as shared. if there were a kind of of as happens in tyrannical regimes the worst fears that you have can in fact be realized in these circumstances. Look, I mean, for for several thousand years people made up stories about if you believe as I do that they were made up about what goes on in hell. But what goes on in hell is just what people do when they can get away with doing it burning and and stabbing and uh, torturing and so forth and so on and that is precisely what happens that's like shakespeare's ring of uh Gyges, isn't it Where yes I guess. Turn it yes and, yes and the laws plato's yeah plato yeah yeah okay what have we got next yeah i'd like to talk another thing that sort of bugs me about about macbeth is what macduff does macduff chooses to leave the country once Macbeth has taken over, I guess to in order to protect his nation. It's it's uh, it's patriotism that takes him away from his family, even though it's a really dangerous situation in his country. What motivated him to? uh, I, I just can't get around. Yes. What What motivated him to do that? The question his wife asks. Yeah, play. yeah. I mean, his wife is is as well. She should rightly outraged. She's about to be murdered. In fact, but the but but even before that, that's yeah. you know. I mean, I think we're to take it as a kind of of uh, two things, I suppose. One, as you say, patriotism, country over family, the the the, the need to to protect Scotland. But the other is maybe we could say an inability to imagine how horrible the tyrant is. After all, Macbeth himself, he usually shares his plans with Lady Macbeth, but in this case he says he's just going to 
not share it with her. He's going to have her applaud it when it's done. Mm. Um, and well, he started, That's what he starts pushing her out. Right. Of, uh, right. Early, you know. So right. Exactly. Yeah. So I think one thing that does happen, I won't say all the time, but not infrequently, in terrible situations of this kind, is that you can't imagine. You can't. This is my time. Right? Yeah. Sure. Uh, is that you can't imagine uh, very easily how bad it's going to get. Look, they were putting separated families out, uh, aside, there are plenty of people who, who got out after 33, after 36, Germany, but there are also plenty of people who stayed, not imagining that this yeah, they could couldn't get, fathom get that. this way, that yeah, yeah. this person wouldn't kill innocent, the wife and children of, mm. of all my little ones, all my... My chickens. My chicks. Yeah. I've got to go, we've got to head back. Uh, okay. So you have one last question, we'll... we'll Okay, the best hope, according to Shakespeare, to what solve this problem lies in the unpredictability of collective life. Maybe you could expand on that. Well, a bit. I think that Shakespeare thought that that uh, thought through in Julius Caesar the obvious way of trying to to uh, keep this horrible thing from happening. Namely, if you see it approaching. Take action, but don't and assassinate. Assassinate. I think in Julius Caesar, he, he explored what it would mean to try to assassinate the figure as he saw it, mm. uh, uh, the figure approaching power. In the cases, Brutus interprets this as what might happen. But then Shakespeare, I think, makes all too clear in that play that that only hastens the very thing that the assassin thought he was preventing. Yeah. So the, the, there's no simple solution. There's civil war in, in, in multiple Shakespeare plays, which turns out to be the way in which it's finally resolved. But if you want to avoid civil war, and you think assassination doesn't work, then I think that Shakespeare's best hope lies in political process, as he depicts it in Coriolanus, which is unpredictable, but it is unpredictable if there is a vote. That say what happens in Coriolanus is that the voters, the Roman voters, are persuaded by their political leaders who are not particularly impressive, that it's not actually in their interest to vote for this tyrant to be who actually hates uh, representative rule and is going to do away with it. Uh, at first, they think he's such a the people think that he's such an impressive as he is, such an astonishing military figure that they owe it to him to vote for him. But actually, once they're the actual political process takes place and the norms of government are insisted upon by the opposition in effect by they're called Sicinius and Brutus that actually begins to unravel the plan to do away with the democratic or in this case republican rule of, of Rome and so it didn't have to. It might not have worked out that way. And in fact, it's still even working out that way. It depended on a whole series of other events in Coriolanus. That doesn't happen at the very last moment. It happens uh, two-thirds of the way through the play. And then there are other things that happen. But life is unpredictable. Collective life with large... I mean, we, we, as we know in our lifetimes, we paid billions of dollars to get information about what's going to happen. Then it turns out not to happen. The opposite happens that we think we... I mean... They may, of course, there are always people who come and say, "I knew the Soviet Union was going to collapse, or I knew the stock that Lehman Brothers was going to fail, or I, uh, or I knew that that uh, Donald Trump would win the election, and so forth." But in fact, many people who we think are in the know are not in the know at all.
Now just, go. Okay. I was just going to quickly bring up that unnamed servant in. Yeah, here. my he favorite also, character. He, he also. But then yeah. he doesn't know. This is a different character and a different situation, and that's the, in a way, the, but he the, the most the moving. I think the most moving moment in Shakespeare of this kind is simply someone whose name we never know, yeah. who has no standing, who's just a servant uh, for the torturer, who watches the torture at work torturing someone who's accused of of treason and who suddenly comes out and says hold your hand my lord i bid you hold i've served you all my life but never better service have i done you than bidding you to hold uh, and the torturer is astonished he says now my villain i'm in my my uh, feudal vassal uh, and eventually actually that character is killed and thrown in the dung heap the servant, but not before he's acted to stop this catastrophe. And in fact, his action leads to the unraveling of that tyrannical, that piece of the tyrannical power. Plus, he stabs Cornwall. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's what I mean. The unraveling yeah. through, yeah. through yeah. He, he, in the scuffle, yeah. he manages to deal corn, the loathsome Cornwall a fatal blow. But that's very different from assassination. That's a kind of moral act to try to stop. The torture in the midst of he wasn't wishing to stop to he had no intention to uh, kill Cornwall he just wanted to in his own interest in Cornwall to serve Cornwall he wants to stop him from doing something that he thinks is and rightly is intolerable and Shakespeare wants you to see it as intolerable even though in Shakespeare's time the torturing of people accused of treason was was par for the course. Right. Thanks for the solution. You Thanks are welcome. It's a pleasure to meet you. Likewise. Thanks for the oh, wonderful no. questions. You're yeah. right. They were good questions. Good. Appreciate it. My pleasure. I've been speaking with Stephen Greenblatt, author of Tyrant, published by Norton.